Well, good morning, everyone. Yeah, are you glad to be here today? Yeah, I am too. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, so today, we're going to continue on in our series, um, really exploring the book of Romans. I don't have much of a beard update for you uh, this week, in case you were wondering. Although, one person did say to me after the first service, they told me that your beard looks really good, like, up front, and they sit in the back. So what this means is, is you should all sit in the front next Sunday to get the full experience, okay? That's why, that's why I want to just suggest to each and every one of you, okay? Uh, so we've been studying the book of Romans. That's what we're working through. And over the last few weeks, here's really what we've explored. We saw how we are called to say yes to Jesus Christ, how he is our Messiah, how we are called to follow him. And then last week, what we really saw was the fact that sin invades and permeates everything. And we're called to say yes to confession, to actually confess to Christ the areas in which our lives do not meet his standards. And then this week, what we're going to see is that if we want to say yes to Jesus, what it also entails is us saying yes to one another, that it is impossible to follow Christ without actually following him with other Christians, with other people, that Christianity is not meant to be done on our own individualistically. It's meant to be done together. And that's what we're going to explore in and through chapter four today. That's kind of where we're at. Uh, so we're going to be moving through chapter four. There's a bunch of different ideas with it. I'm going to read the first little section to kind of get us set up for what Paul wants to talk about in chapter four. And so let's begin in chapter four, verse one. He starts uh, with this. He says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. And in this kind of opening, we get introduced really to the two main kind of dominant themes of Romans chapter four. Okay, we hear a little bit about Abraham, and Paul is going to talk a ton about Abraham in chapter 4. We also hear about the importance of faith. These two themes come up again and again and again in Romans 4. I'll read to you just a few verses from Romans 4 that just show the centrality of both Abraham, really as a model of faith, and the importance of faith. So in verse 3, we read that Abraham believed in God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. In verse 5, we read that people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sins. In verse 9, we read, now is this blessing only for Jews or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we've been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous because God, uh, by God because of his faith. In verse 13, we read this, that clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was not based on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. These themes of Abraham and faith continue again and again. So today what I want to explore is why is Paul talking so much about faith and what is it? And why does he use Abraham as kind of the founder or father of this? I want to explore both those two things. Why does he talk about faith? And then why does he talk about Abraham? I want to begin by talking about why he talks about faith, or more specifically, what faith actually is. Now, faith in Greek is the word pistis. And in English, it is commonly translated as belief, as trust, as faith. And those are good translations, but they can also lead us a little bit astray. Because in English, as I've shared with you before, in English, when we use the word faith, it is primarily associated with thinking things. 
like thinking the right thoughts, having the right beliefs, having the correct doctrine, that faith in our common day English usage is often about arranging our mental furniture correctly, okay? And this is a problem. This is a problem. Because what then happens is it turns faith into an inward thinking mental thing when faith really, what it really is, is all about. It's an embodied whole life following Jesus kind of a thing. Right? Faith isn't just believing the right things. Faith is actually also putting them into practice. That if, if you really want to know what you believe, what you would look at is not what you say you believe. What you look at is what you actually do. Those are your actual beliefs. So faith, when Paul is talking about it here, it isn't just having the right mental thoughts. It's actually about living life in the right way. That in Greek, the word faith has these three kind of spheres to it, okay? That the word faith has these three overlapping concepts of mental assent, right? Believing the right things, that's important. Of sworn fidelity, which means you actually follow someone as a king. And thirdly, embodied loyalty. This is why Matthew Bates writes, and I agree with him. He says this, that faith in Jesus is best described as allegiance to him as king. So when we read of the word faith in chapter four, and I want to encourage you to read chapter four this week, right? Take any of your questions back to your home churches and work that stuff through. But when you encounter the word faith, realize that Paul is not just talking about what we believe, but what we actually live out in our lives. It's deeper and more embodied than we often think of it. Okay? So that's the first thing. That's the first thing. Paul talks a lot about faith and it's about how we live our lives and how we are orientated to Christ with trust, with embodied allegiance, all of that. Secondly then, why does Paul in chapter four talk a ton about Abraham? Like, honestly, when you read chapter four, you will realize the entire chapter is all about Abraham. And Abraham really gets set up as this model to follow, as this person to kind of emulate. But why does Paul do that? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that what Paul is seeking to do in chapter four is to bring two diverse groups that are threatening to split, that are threatening to divide, seeking to bring two diverse groups together. That if you remember, what I share with you is that in the audience of the uh, Church of Roman, of the Church of Roman, of the Church of Rome, okay, in the book of Romans, there are two dominant groups. There are Gentile followers of Jesus, and there are Jewish followers of Jesus. And these two groups are actually threatening to separate that I know it's really hard to ever imagine that a church might split over politics, theology, and interpretation. And I know this is like, has nothing to do with today, right? Like I know. Um, but that's what was happening back then. That these two groups were actually threatening to divide over those lines of politics, of religion, of theology, and interpretation. And so what Paul is seeking to do actually in chapter four then is to present, Mo present Moses, present Abraham, present Abraham as the father and founder of both groups. He's seeking to give common ground to these two different groups, to these two groups that follow Jesus in a very different way. That if you were Jewish, you would have been raised with the Torah. You would have followed every one of those commandments in the Old Testament. This would have been actually a way for you to practice faithfulness to God. So you'd have this group of Jewish followers of Jesus. They would have certain things they would eat, certain things they would wear. They wouldn't associate with certain people because the law forbade it. So you have this group of people, but then you also have this group of people who are Gentile followers of Jesus, and they didn't know the law. They didn't follow it. And this was causing deep tension. So Paul is seeking to bring them together under Abraham. We can see this really in the very first uh, verse where Paul says this, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. 
So he's setting up Abraham as kind of the founder of the Jewish kind of world. Listen to what he writes next. And what did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, but that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then he says here that yes, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation, but then also what he says is that he's going to be the founder of all those who believe and follow Christ through faith. This is what he's seeking to do. It gets really clear later on in the chapter. Let me read to you verse 16, where it's clear that Paul wants to use Abraham as common ground between both differing groups. Listen to what we read. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. Focus in on this. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. Listen to what he says. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. Abraham is the father of all who believe. What he's trying to do is these two separate groups who are seeking to follow Christ together. He's trying to give them some commonality, some common ground. He's already taught them that both groups are actually really captured under the problem of sin that both groups have the same solution and faith in Jesus. And now he's saying that both groups also have the same spiritual father in Abraham, that it's the same for all who believe, whether you are Jewish or whether you're a Gentile. That's really what's going on in chapter four. Paul is seeking to give this small, struggling little church, actually this focus of unity in the midst of their diversity. I think the problem though for us is even if you understand what I'm saying, it doesn't have the same impact or oomph that we would normally have for the, for the ancient day people who would have heard this. That we hear this text in and through our modern lenses. So what I want to do today is something a bit different. Today, to help us to understand the audience, we're actually gonna have like a dramatic reading in just a moment. Because what I think is really important is that if you wanna understand the Bible, this is just true, okay? You need to understand who it was written to, amen? You cannot understand a letter without understanding the people who are seeking to hear it. The problem is, is that we don't live in the ancient day. So we don't understand all of the differences and complexities that were going on. So what we're going to do in just a moment is we're going to hear from two people reading kind of a firsthand fictional historical account of what it might be to live like in the Roman church. We're going to hear from a woman that we have named Livia, which is an actual ancient day Roman name. And she is going to be a Gentile slave. Somebody who's seeking to follow Jesus, but in many ways is not in control of her life because she's a slave. Then we're also going to hear from someone called Neresis. He's actually mentioned in the ends of Romans. And he's going to share what it's like to seek to follow Jesus as a Jewish kind of follower of Christ. Now, obviously, these are fictional kind of accounts, but they are deeply historically based on the actual life of what it would have been like in Rome. And for that, I want to mention that I'm very grateful for Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmatt's book, Romans Disarmed, which actually does this and helped to provide the foundation for what we're about to experience. So we're going to hear is two people sharing their perspectives of what it would have been like way back in Rome to follow Christ. Just a heads up with this, that Livia will be sharing a bit also on the reality of sexual abuse. Because if you lived in Rome and you were both a male or a female and were a slave, this was the reality. This was pervasive. And it also then made it very difficult for people to come together because of some of those challenges. So we're going to hear from Livia, and we're going to hear from Neresis 
share what it would have been like way back when to seek to follow Christ in this church in Rome. So we're going to invite them to the stage and want to give them a round of applause as they come uh, forward to share with us here today. The first meeting of the way I, Livia, attended was strange. A good kind of strange, mostly. As a slave, it was hard to get there in the first place. I just don't have much time to get away from the house. And if I don't have permission and my master is looking for me, well, you know how it is. There are harsh consequences, but I risk it anyways because my friend Iris told me that they were reading a letter from Paul, one of the leaders of the way. And because of the rumors I was hearing, I was curious. I was shaking when I arrived. It made no sense for all of these people to be in the same room. Slaves and free laborers, but also some wealthy merchants, slave owners, and even some who worked for Caesar. So I started to panic. What if I wasn't actually welcome? But someone greeted me and brought me in. I feel a little silly thinking about it now because really from that first moment, people were so kind. They asked me my name and we even shared a meal together. As if we were family. No one paid any attention to status. Status didn't even exist within those walls. It was and still is so incredible and mind-boggling because, of course, Rome still exists. I'm still a slave with no real identity or ownership of what happens to my body, still raising children who are not my own, and still missing my own children, long ago sold as slaves. But now, because of Yeshua, Jesus, I am a person, and I have community. I am embraced rather than shamed. Rome now feels small compared to this. Like the way of this Jesus will outlast Rome and live far beyond this Caesar or any of his laws. So now I attend meetings whenever I can risk it. I look forward to it, mostly. It can get awkward when you have people with different backgrounds and levels of power and influence trying to learn how to act like equals. We have to undo a lot of what we've grown up with. And though I mostly feel comfortable with everyone, there is this one man, Neresis. He seems more worried about the rules from his childhood than focused on Jesus himself. And it seems like those rules make him dislike me. He acts uncomfortable when I'm around, and I think he positions himself as far away from me as he can when we eat meals together. I try to ignore it, to understand, but I'm hurt. I didn't choose to be a slave. I don't choose to do the things that I do. And his discomfort just makes me feel worse about it. Like I'm unfit 
somehow because I'm a slave. I, Neresis, grew up in Rome helping my father and learning the family trade in our pottery shop by the Tiber River. As Jews, we strive to follow the law and keep ourselves pure, even though we are hated amongst most in Jew in Rome. But for any of us in this section of town, it is a hard life, working long hours and scraping by to have enough food to eat. Our patron, who we rent our stall from, is power-hungry and unforgiving, looking for any chance to make life difficult for us. He is like so many in Rome. So when I first heard of Jesus and joined the way, I was longing for a reason to hope. And then the first time I heard Paul's letter read aloud, I felt a fire in my stomach. This Christ finally calling attention to all of Rome's atrocities. We ignore them too often while they cheat and congratulate themselves for it. Worse, they revel in their excess they throw parties to flaunt it. So arrogant and so brutal. And now, being a part of this community, it was like a lifeline for me. It's hard to travel across town for meetings, but it felt like I was finding meaning for my life and like I was finally standing up to the violence. These people, these other followers, they want the same things too, to find community, to name Rome's horrors, and to find a way to peace. But there are some things in Paul's letters that I struggle with. Paul claims the Torah has been fulfilled by Jesus, but surely our life, uh, our, surely the law still means something. Jesus followed all the laws. If we are to follow God, there must be rightness in our lives. My people have lived this way for generations. It is all that I've known. The Gentiles that belong to the way, they just don't understand this. It's a complicated thing, learning alongside people who have never known your laws. They talk about grace so much as if they don't have to change anything in the way they live. There are people among us who have not changed what they wear or what they eat, some of them I know aren't pure because they're still forced to offer the same favors to their masters, but they do nothing to purify themselves. I mean, what do we do? How do we show we are a different people, a holy people? There is this one woman, Livia, who doesn't follow any of the laws, and I understand that she doesn't even know them. And I know it isn't in her control of her life as a slave, but sometimes it seems that she flaunts her freedom from those rules. How do I learn to accept people in our community without giving up my own convictions? I want so badly to belong but I also don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't know whether to feel angry or guilty. I'm not proud of having to be a slave. Paul talks about living as equals, but how do I live as someone's equal while keeping myself right in God's eyes? 
There is grace and there is truth. One cannot be sacrificed for the other. Paul talks often of grace in his letters, which is comforting to me. But I know there is more to learn. I hope they will give me a chance to figure it all out. But if there is a new law we are under, then maybe I have more to learn. Am I ready to leave that part of my faith behind? I do feel hopeful. Really, I do. I'm just so scared of what comes next. <laughs> I am scared of what comes next. I feel like there are more questions than answers. There's so much for us all to work out. I suspect Jesus is the answer to these questions. I'll keep going back. I'll keep trying. Yes, it is worth it to continue. So I want to invite you to keep both Livia and Norris's story in your mind as we work our way through Romans. Because it's really impossible to interpret it well without that context, without understanding the actual lived experiences of people in the Roman church. Imagine Neresis and Livia sitting together in a small shop in the back, right? Where they both risked something to show up to that service and hearing this letter from Paul read. Right? The letter begins in Romans 1 with Paul reminding them to say yes to Jesus as the Messiah. They would both agree with that. That is both of their hearts and why they are there. Right? And then Paul turns his attention to the Gentile nations, talking about how full of sin and idolatry they are. And Livia might feel some shame. And Neresis might feel some smugness. And then in Romans 2, you know, Paul flips it all and says, actually, you Jewish followers of Jesus are just as bad as everybody else. And all of a sudden, you know, things would feel a little bit uncertain. Things would feel a little bit shaky for both of them. And then in Romans 3, where Paul really clearly shows that what matters is having faith in Jesus and that this matters for both of them, right? They'd be sitting there next to one another. And then Paul starts to share really about their common ground, right? Of Abraham as a father of faith for all who believe, whether you follow the law or not, that what Paul is seeking to do is to give someone like Livia and Neresis reason to come together when so much is seeking to push them apart. Because this is just true. It is always easier to split and to divide than to come together, isn't it? It's always easier to do that, right? And that's what is threatening this little church. And so Paul seeks to remind them that they have these things in common, that sin is a problem, that Abraham is the father of both all who believe, and that Jesus Christ is the answer and the solution really to all of it, that there was for this little church almost a double temptation. Okay, here's the two temptations. There's a temptation for people like Neresis, right, who've been raised with the law, right, to really emphasize, right, morality and all of those sort of things, to become legalistic, to really to say to someone like Livia, our Bible is unquestionably clear. You have to follow every one of these laws or you don't believe in Jesus, right? There would have been the temptation to double down on that. Livia would have had maybe the opposite temptation of really seeking to use the grace that she's been given as an excuse or license for sin, right? Or, or to really talk about grace so much that she kind of flaunts her freedom and actually causes division. That would have been really easy for these two kind of groups would be to split. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he calls people who are different to follow him together. 
And in Romans 4, that's what Paul is seeking to do with these two groups of those who are Jewish followers of Jesus and those who are Gentile followers of Jesus. That's what he's getting at. This is why he writes, so the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift and we are all certain to receive it. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, he's saying that's not the main thing. What is the main thing is if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That what Paul is seeking to do with both these groups is to move their focus from their differences to their shared faith and their shared father in Abraham. That's what he's seeking to do, to provide some common ground for both groups. And that then both groups would follow, you know, in the footsteps of Abraham with faith in Jesus. This is how he ends it. He sends it this way, saying, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too. There he's talking to both groups. It's recorded for our benefit too. It wasn't just for Abraham's. It was recorded for us, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him like Abraham did. If we believe in the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, he was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So what does this mean for us all here today? Well, there's a lot to unpack in Romans 4, and I want to encourage you, as I said, to read it on your own this week. One of the things I think we need to actually recognize in this passage is that Paul seeks to keep drawing people back to some of the things that bind their faith together, right? The importance of everybody having faith, the fact that Abraham is the father of both groups, and that Jesus is the one who saves us all. That I think how Romans 4 would have been heard for an original audience is it would have been heard as a challenge and a call to follow Christ with faith like Abraham, but to do that together. That's the real radical thing, to follow Christ even in the midst of differences and disagreements and different perspectives and even different theologies. Because Neresis and Livia might not have agreed upon everything, but they did actually agree upon what mattered most was actually faith in Christ. And that's what we're called to do as well, to have the same sort of perspective. So today, what is my main point here today? My main point is that if we want to say yes to Jesus, what this also means is that we must also say yes to one another, that we actually need to follow Jesus together, even with our differences, even with our different backgrounds, even with some of the differences each of us has. That's okay. We're called to be remembered and to be reminded that the main thing is Jesus, and we are each called to follow him together. So today, my main point is that we need to say yes to one another, because here in chapter 4, Paul gives a reminder that what binds that church together is faith, the fact that Abraham is the father of all who believe, but most importantly, that Jesus Christ is the one who saves all of us. So practically, what does this mean for us here today? Well, I think once you start to get Neresis and Livia's lives, you start to understand how even though they lived like thousands of years ago, right, what they are talking about and struggling with is something that's very relevant for us that it's really easy to split. But Paul is actually saying something is much more radical. We need to come together and to follow in unity. So practically, practically, what does that mean for us here today? Well, today, I actually want to practice following Christ together because I think that matters. And so today we are going to do an ancient Christian practice that is all about following Christ together. It's about coming together under one table, even with differences in theology and politics and religion, just like Livia and Neresis would have had 
that's all about saying what matters most is Christ. So today, we're going to practice the ancient Christian practice of communion, of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper. We're going to practice that together as a way of following Christ together. But today, uh, we're going to practice it a little bit differently, if that's all right with you guys today. Okay? Um, sometimes I say that, but I also know I'm not really changing what we're doing, so it's still, it's still happening. Okay? What we're going to do today is we're going to invite you to come forward, right, as a family, as individuals, as, as couples, whatever it may be, to come forward and to receive communion, right, to take it at these stations that are scattered around uh, the church. There are three up front, and there are two in the back, and there's one also in the very back of the auditorium. We're going to invite you to come forward and receive communion, and then as you receive it, Afterwards, we're going to invite you also to share communion with someone else. That what I want to invite you specifically to do is the deacons will hand you bread, they will hand you juice, you can receive it, and then I want to invite you to turn to the person behind you in the line that will form, to turn to the person or the group behind you, and to simply say these words to them, that this is Christ's body broken for you, and this is Jesus' blood shed for you. That essentially what I want to do is I want to move us away from taking communion individually and to take it together that each and every one of us would have the opportunity to both receive from Christ, but also to share Christ with someone else, with the person or the group behind us. Right. Now, I know whenever we do something new, there are questions and people can get a little bit nervous, okay? So I want to answer some of the questions right off the bat, okay? Number one, number one, you might be saying to yourself, what if I forget the right words to say, right? That's totally okay. They are written on a sheet at every single one of the tables, okay? We are taking away all obstacles and challenges for this, okay? They are written there. Secondly, so, yeah, they're also up there too. Yes, yeah, that's also correct for me. They're also up there. Secondly, secondly, you might be saying to yourself, but I'm not like holy or good enough to really give communion to someone else. Guess what? No one is, amen? That's the entire point. None of us earn this. Actually, Christ is the only one who has. We just get invited to participate in it. So today we want to invite all of you, if you want to receive Jesus and to share Jesus, you are welcome to come forward and be part of that, okay? Thirdly, you might be saying, but what if I say the wrong words or screwed up? That's okay. That's okay. These words aren't magic, right? It's not Harry Potter. That's not what this is, okay? It doesn't need to be perfect. What matters is the heart behind it, okay? Fourthly, you might be saying, but like, might it be a little bit awkward or weird if I turn to somebody and I don't really know them and then I say the words to them? Might that be a little bit awkward? Probably. That's okay. Yeah, probably. That's okay. Right? Because we're called to follow Christ together and actually pushing past that matters. And if you think this is awkward, let's just be grateful I didn't choose the other Christian ancient practice of foot washing, correct? Right? I could have gone that way as well. We're not doing that, right? We're doing this. We're just going to come together. Because I think what this passage is all about is people who are different coming together to follow Christ together, recognizing that we have the same father in Abraham, the same calling of faith, and the same Savior who saves us in Jesus Christ. So we're going to invite you to do in just a moment, the worship group is going to play two songs, is to come forward to receive communion there, and after you receive it at the tables, to turn to the group behind you and to simply say those words, that this is Christ's body broken for you, and this is Jesus' blood shed for you that all of us might receive and also share together because we are actually called to say yes to one another. So today, what's my main point? That we need to say yes to following Christ together. And the way that we can do that today is by receiving communion and then sharing it with another. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I pray as we come into this moment to really receive your body and your blood uh, that was broken and shed for us, 
I pray, might we experience you? I pray, might we actually encounter you? Might we be transformed by you? But might we be transformed by you, not only in the receiving of communion, but also in the sharing of it, also in the participating of it, also in the coming together. So God, as we move into this, I pray, would each and every one of us, would we have a sense of your Holy Spirit here in this space and in this room? God, we are so grateful for the fact that you died for each and every one of us. Might we know your hope and your mercy and your forgiveness. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. So I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward to the various tables. As they do, I'm going to read to you a traditional opening of, um, of communion. And the deacons will be there to help you through all of this. So we read this. This is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. Come, you who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time or even ever before. Come, all of us who have tried to follow and all of us who have failed. These gifts are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, not because the church invites you. Come, not because I invite you. Come, because Jesus Christ invites you to be known and fed here. And on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had thanked God for it, he broke it into pieces. He gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this wine is the token of God's new covenant to save you. An agreement sealed with the blood I will pour out for you. So as the worship group sings, I want to invite you to come forward to receive communion and then to turn to the person behind you and to also share in communion, to say those words that this is the body of Christ broken and this is the blood that is shed for you. I invite you to do that now. <laughs> 